Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How would you describe your last 18 months? The Washington Post asked readers to describe 2020 in one word. The top three? Exhausting, lost, and chaotic. Jimmy Kim, director of Redemptive Unity, finishes the series Chasing Truth with this sermon entitled Our Fortress in the Midst of Chaos, which covers Psalm 46. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. I'm going to talk about Psalm 46. We're going to look at God's Word, and my hope is to exposit this well and apply it into our lives well, it's a, it's a passage, a psalm, probably with which many of us are very familiar, in particular verse 10, and even more specifically verse 10a, be still, right, be still, for I am the Lord God, right, know that I am God. And we often leave out the, the rest of that verse, which says this, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in all the earth. Hopefully, by the end of this sermon, you will have seen and heard that verse in a new light, not one where it's directed simply to us to find comfort and peace and rest, which it absolutely calls us to do, but also who this great God is, who is our fortress, and only in him can we find our hope and our peace. You know, when I was a child, um, interestingly, you might not think it based on the fact that I'm here in front of hundreds of people uh, and I don't want to even think about how many more people online watch this and who may watch this later on because that's kind of terrifying to me. As a child, I was terrified of crowds, of loud noises. I was terrified of people's eyes on me. So whenever I would go to the department store with my mom, right, we'd walk in, right, and it got so um, typical that I would let go she would let go of me as well, and I would duck into the clothes, right? Because that was my refuge and fortress, right? And that's, that's how much I didn't like being around crowds, right? Um, and my mom knew, let Jimmy do that. I'll go do my shopping. I'll come back and get him, right? Uh, you know, when you grow up in the 80s, things were a little bit different. <laughs> um, that, and it goes without saying, surely there were a handful of shoppers who would go through the racks of clothes and they were terrified. Like, oh my gosh, there's a little kid in there. <laughs> Calm down, lady. I'm here because I'm scared of you, actually. <laughs> no, I, I'm joking. I, I did hide in those places because I did want to feel a sense of safety and refuge and comfort. And I think for us, as we read the Psalms, and rightly so, they provide a great source of hope a great source of refuge, a great source of, of, of a reminder of who God is. And it's a peaceful place to go. It's a restful place to go. But those of you who are familiar with the Psalms, you know that not all of the Psalms are structured this way. You have Psalms that are Psalms of praise. And that's what Psalms mean. They mean songs, literally, right? Uh, and it was a part of a, a book, a Psalter, that was meant to be used in the temple or in the tabernacle for worship for God's people. And it has remained that for millennia. Or even today, many of our songs that we sing in, as praise and worship songs and even hymns draw directly from God's word in the Psalms. But you have songs of, of praise. You have Psalms of lament even. 
You have psalms that are geared toward the, the royal king on the throne. And you have psalms that are geared toward the city of Jerusalem. And that's what our psalm is about today. You have multiple authors of psalms, and most of us would probably think David. David is the author of a good number of the psalms, or at least the psalms are attributed to him. But then you also have other authors like Solomon. Moses has uh, penned a psalm that's included in this hymnal of sorts. And then you have uh, the sons of Korah, who are the authors of these psalms here and a dozen more. Who were the sons of Korah? Those of you who are astute biblical scholars know that Korah led a rebellion back in the wilderness wandings of Israel, or rather before they were even Israel. While the Hebrews were freed from slavery in Egypt, they're wandering around in the wilderness. They're even complaining and moaning. It would just be better to go back to being a slave in Egypt. Korah rises up and says, no more of this. I've had enough. We've had enough. Now, of course, God dealt with that rebellion and he dealt with Korah, but yet his line, the Levitical line through Korah remained. In fact, it says in 1 Chronicles 9 that the Korah or the sons of Korah were known as temple and doorkeepers, right? In, Psalm, in 1 Chronicles 6, they were also noted as singers and musicians in the temple. So even in spite of Korah's rebellion and his sinfulness, God preserved his line. For what purpose? Not just for the family and not for this lineage, but because of who God is. The purpose of the Psalms, like I mentioned, were before the, the worship of God in the temple for the people of God. Um, the New Testament, Old Testament scholar Graham Goldsworthy, he, he writes this in the book, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture. He says the Psalms reflect upon the saving deeds of God and upon human failings. This is the purpose. This is the reason why the Psalms exist. Reflect on the saving deeds of God and upon human failings. They, like narrative history and the prophets, they describe the disintegration of the kingdom of man and longing for the day when God will act to save his people. So you might not think it on first glance, but the Psalms are meant to orient our hearts. Orient our hearts in the sense that we on this earth are going to experience incredible failing and suffering. But in heaven, we have something to look forward to, a reality that will eventually come and God himself will come and save us. That's the purpose of these Psalms. And when we interpret these Psalms, what do we need to do? Well, when we read it, it is incredibly helpful. And in fact, I would say that it's necessary to read the Psalm as always speaking about Christ and by Christ. I hope that paints a better picture for us as we look at Psalm 46. So let's read this together. The word of the, or rather I will read it for us. The word of the Lord says this in Psalm 46. God is our refuge, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. For the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Three things that I want us to look at as we go through this psalm. The first one or first point is this. That God is our comforter, though there be chaos in creation. God is our comforter, though there be chaos in creation around us. All things considered, we must understand that at the time of the original audience hearing this psalm, Jerusalem was under attack. It was under siege. And yet this psalm is a defiantly optimistic song considering the situation. Who is singing a song of joy? Who is singing a a song of hopefulness when their city is being attacked on every side? When your water and your food are are in short supply? Who is doing this? Well, that is what the psalmist is calling on the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, writes this. It's robust and defiant tone suggests that it was composed at a time of crisis, which makes the confession of faith doubly impressive. But as the crisis is left unidentified and the psalm ranges far beyond any local situation, we're going to hold on to this thought that This psalm for its original audience and for the Israelites who sang it in the temple, they knew, they knew of a very real example that their city was under siege and they were living actually in terror. So verse one, God is our refuge and he is our strength. Refuge denoting a sense of defense, right? It's a place that we go. It's that coat rack or the the clothing rack that I would run to to say, hide me from all of the dangers out there. We run to God as our refuge. He is a defensive stalwart, our fortress. But not only that, he is our strength. So while God says, come, find refuge for your soul, I will recharge you and I'm going to send you back out. You can't stay here. I'm going to send you out. In fact, I will fight the battle for you, but you must remain faithful to me. Go and find strength. And not only does he tell us to come and rest and go and fight, he says, I am with you, a very present help in trouble. He is not a God that we need to conjure. He is not a God that we uh, recite some kind of incantation and then God comes. No, he is ever present. He is ever with us. He is our hope, even in the midst of our city being attacked. Jerusalem sits on a hill or on a series of hills. Impressive sight to behold. A city on top of a mountain. A mountain for anyone, right? You look at it and you think, that's not going to move. It's not going to go anywhere. A city on top of a hill like Jerusalem with its walls was impressive. It was impregnable. It was not something that you could break in and easily conquer. You wouldn't be able to throw the city off of the mountain. And yet, what do we see here in verses two through three? The psalmist says, we will not fear though the earth give way. That's a preposterous thought that the city or that this mountain itself will be thrown into the sea. But I will not fear even if that were to happen. 
God can make this happen, surely. But even if it were to happen, because God is in our midst, we will not fear. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters foam, roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear because God is with us and he is our present help in trouble. God is in her midst. Therefore, right, that is a promise that's built into that. God is going to do what he's going to do. God is who he says he is, and that is he is our refuge and he is our strength. When we look at the waters foaming and the mountains being formed and moving, that's creation language, is it not? You can go back to Genesis 1 and be reminded that the earth was void and it was formless. There was chaos abounding. And what does God do? He speaks to it and he says, stop and I'm going to form light. I'm going to form the land. I'm going to form the day. I'm going to form the stars in the sky and the sun in the sky. I'm going to form all living creatures because I am the voice of creation. I am your comforter. I will bring comfort in chaos. There are many things that we could behold across this planet that would make us stand in awe and wonder because creation has that ability, right? And in that, we actually learn about God, Paul says. There are places that we can go and be astounded by the beauty of it. There are also places that we can go and be struck by the terror whether it's a high height or a very deep valley, incredible temperature fluctuations maybe. One place that I think of is Thor's Well on the Oregon coast. Some of you may have been there. I've went there several years back on a a road trip down the Pacific Coast Highway. Here's a picture of Thor's Well. Thor's Well is an impressive sight to behold. This is merely, you know, you know, hundreds of yards from Pacific Coast Highway. You can hike to the very edge of Thor as well. You wouldn't do it at high tide. Very unwise. Um, Though I'm sure there are some extreme sportsmen out there or women that would want to do that. I would would not. Um, When my family and I went, we were there at low tide and you could actually go up to the very edge. And sure enough, like, no, we did not venture that far over. But it was still, even at low tide, the water would rush in and then it would explode back out. And I cannot imagine the terror of being there at high tide. And God says, I'm in control of all of this. I created this. There is nothing that happens at Thor's well that catches me by surprise. It is doing what I want it to do. This is the God that the Israelites are singing to and saying, he is my refuge. He is my strength. Therefore, we will not fear. So when it comes time to apply the psalm, this psalm in particular, but all psalms as we read them, when it comes time to apply them, we must read it from the perspective of Christ as if it's speaking of Christ and that Christ himself is speaking it. So we're gonna practice doing this. Okay, we should not be seduced into thinking As Graham Graham Goldsworthy says, we should not be seduced into thinking that the Psalms can speak from and of themselves to us. We have to go through Christ first. If they speak to us of God, they must speak to us of the God who has finally revealed himself in Christ. So we're going to practice this. We're going to look at the Psalm now through the voice and person of Christ. How is Christ comforter in the chaos of creation? Well, in Colossians 1, what does it say? 
that Christ himself was there at creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. Christ is before all things. And in him, in Christ, all things hold together. So what will we be terrified of when Christ is our comforter? I should say, there is nothing. Though our city be sieged, though our city be crumbling, if Christ is in her midst, is in our midst, of what should we be afraid? Because what is it that Jesus says about himself? He is our comforter. Look at Matthew 11. Take my yoke, Jesus says, upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and I am lowly in heart and you will find rest, refuge for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know why it is easy and light for us? Because Christ bears the brunt of that work. Because he is the firstborn of all creation. All things are held in his hand. Christ is comforter. Matthew 28, before Christ ascends into heaven, what does he say to his disciples? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. By the way, what is it that Christ says or is said of Christ when he comes to this earth? I am with you. His name shall be Emmanuel. What a comforting reminder that God is in the midst a very present help in trouble. So God is our comforter through the chaos of creation, but he is also our protector. Though there be chaos in the city, God is our protector, though there be chaos in the city. Again, don't forget the occasion of the psalm. What's the purpose of the psalm? It's to lead people into worship, but also for the initial audience, it was, hey, there is an enemy out there and they are coming into here. If you were to read verse four and following, you would not think that anyone was terrified. Verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. Again, there's that promise. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Again, creation language. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The city of Jerusalem, like I mentioned, is a city on a hill or on a series of hills on the mountaintops. There is no river, as far as I know, that flows up to a mountain, maybe down from a mountain, but there is no water source on Jerusalem. There was a spring, yes. So what is the psalmist here talking about? Is it about the physical city of Jerusalem? No, he's pointing to a new Jerusalem, a future Jerusalem where there is a city, where life flows out of this city. This river, water, brings gladness. It brings life. It brings flourishing. It's not here now. But the psalmist is saying, but that day is going to come. That city will come. As impressive as Jerusalem is, it can only get better. And it will get better because Christ is our protector. Because God is our protector. God is in the midst of the city. The same God who can tell the mountains to throw themselves into the sea. He is the one who sustains and who protects. When morning dawns, light comes, 
If you're a city under siege, right, what is the enemy going to do? You're going to cut off the water sources. You'll cut off the food supplies. You'll cut off roads. And guess what? When do you attack? A night when you can't see a thing. And guess who would be terrified? The inhabitants of the city. And so that's why they hope for light. They hope for light to come. By the way, what does Jesus say about himself in John 8? I am the light of the world. I'm fascinated by cities that have rivers that flow through them. I grew up in Washington, D.C. The Potomac flows through the city. Well, maybe not literally through the city, but dividing the Maryland side and the Virginia side of D.C., Right. Um, recently, my family, uh, we went to, to London and to Paris. Both of those cities have rivers that flow through them. Um, my family is from Korea. When I went and visited Seoul, I never realized, um, having been born and raised in the States, that a city, or rather a river, flows through that city as well. Right? Uh, there's another city that has a river uh, flowing through it that has a protector by night, and that's Gotham. I don't mean New York City. I mean like the literal Gotham City from the, the Batman legend or the story of Batman. You didn't think you were going to hear about Batman today when we were talking about Psalm 46, did you? Um, I think it's fascinating that today we, we are drawn to these stories of, of heroes, right? We're drawn to these stories of protectors over people, over cities, Right? And what is it that Batman does? He takes it upon himself in the dark of night to protect the, the citizens of Gotham. But this is the thing about Batman and almost every other superhero. They're incredibly flawed and broken. And I think a part of the reason why we're attracted even to those stories is because we recognize how incredibly broken and flawed we are. We want a hero, but we can't ever have a perfect hero. That is preposterous, we say. Scripture says it is not preposterous. We have a comforter. We have a protector. His name is Jesus. So let's look at these verses from the voice and the perspective of Christ to us. There's a river that makes stream the glad, the city of God. Well, again, that's pointing to a new Jerusalem that Jesus ushers in victoriously, triumphantly, right? God is in the midst of her. Well, what is it again that is said about Jesus? That God is with us. His name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, take heart. Though there be trouble in this world, I am with you, Jesus says. And look at verse seven. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I mentioned several times that Jerusalem was a city on top of a hill. The Hebrew word here for our fortress is not just a refuge or a castle or some kind of armament. It literally is high and unattainable. He's saying that the Lord God is something that can never be attacked and vanquished by some enemy. It is impossible. It is impossible. It is not a city that is impervious to attack. Rather, it is not a city that can be easily attacked and the city then fall. Christ protects. God protects. But interestingly, the picture of Jesus that we see in the New Testament, is it one of a warrior? Is he a warrior? Yes, absolutely. Exodus 14 talks about Christ being the warrior of God, the warrior of the Lord. It, God is himself a warrior. He fights our battles for us. 
but Christ describes himself so, so differently, does he not? Earlier I mentioned John 8, I'm the light of the world. John 10 says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But this thief, what does he do? Comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ is our protector. He lets in and out whom he chooses to find pasture, to find life. The opposite of stealing, killing, and destroying. To provide, to give life, to flourish his people, his sheep. The very next verse, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That doesn't sound like a warrior protector, does it? He is. Jesus is our warrior. But he flips that idea on his head, does he not? He says, I will fight the battle for you. And in fact, I will lay down my life for you. His protection looks like sacrifice. God is our comforter. God is our protector. And similarly, but lastly, we see in these last four verses, God is our champion, though there be chaos in the nations. Verse eight starts off uniquely. It says, come behold. Again, the inhabitants of Jerusalem at this time They were in the midst of being attacked. They were not thriving. They were not hashtag blessed. They were not hashtag winning, whatever ridiculous hashtag there is for it. If someone was live tweeting this event, it was, oh no, help us. How do we get out of here? But the psalmist says, come and behold what? The works of the Lord, because he has brought desolation on this earth and he makes wars to cease. And he breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. The reality is that the city is under siege. But the greater reality is that God is in control. And so that's why the psalmist says, come and behold. It's prophetic language. It says, come and see. It may not be reality right here and now. But it will be because we know who God is. God is our comforter. God is our protector. And he will champion us. So let's rest on his laurels. Let's rest in his work. Come and behold. Come and see. Peace will come. And it's a unique picture of peace, is it not? What does he do? It's not a passive peace. It's not a pat you on the head, pat you on the back, hide over here and let's find peace, peace. It is, I will break the spear of the enemy. It's the peace that I sought for as a little kid who went to go get my older brother and said, hey, Johnny's been picking on me. You need to come and make peace. And it wasn't, I want my brother Tom to tell Johnny, stop it. I want him to go to Johnny and give him what for. That's what God is doing here. God is saying, I will break the enemy. You who are being harassed and helpless, I will break it and I will give you victory. I'm coming to save you. I will champion you. And that is the context in which we see verse 10. So be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. The audience here, the primary recipient of that phrase that Jesus or God is saying is not to the inhabitant of Israel. It is to the enemy of Israel. 
He's saying, he's rebuking, be still, stop. Know that I am God. You are not. Just because you have weapons, just because you have chariots, just because you have might, does not mean you are going to overcome my people and my city and my nation. I will protect because I am God and you are not. And then what does he say? He does not end the psalm there. That should be enough for the inhabitant of Jerusalem and the worshiper of God in the temple. But it's not enough because God has a greater plan. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. What does that mean? Is that a gloating that God is doing in front of the nations? I don't believe so. The Psalms are too consistent. The Old Testament is too consistent. And the the New Testament is too consistent that God is for the nations. He will punish the nations because they are harassing God's people. But he's also providing a way of salvation for the nations. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah, by the way, is writing to a beluggered. That's hard to say. Wow. Um, He's... Isaiah is writing to a people who have been exiled from their home country, from their city, at the hands of the enemy, at the hands of the nations. And what does Isaiah say? What is this prophecy that comes to him? Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations will do what? Are they going to run from it? No, the nations will flow to it. That makes no sense from an earthly point of view. Why would the nations run to the city that is terrifying them? Except for the fact that God says, I want you to come because in me, you too can find salvation. You see, the Israelites had failed. The Israelites had failed to be a light to the nations. God was establishing them in the promised land so that the nations can also come to know who God is. Verse three, many people shall come and say, come, let's go up to this mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that is Jerusalem, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. For he shall judge between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the command. This is why we ought to see Christ as our comforter, protector, and champion. Not only for our sake, not only for my salvation, my freedom, and my spoils of the victory. We can easily get lost in that. The temptation is so high. But when have we last got lost in the Savior himself? He's my champion. He is my protector. He is my comforter. The champion gets the glory, not us. Verse 10, I mentioned this earlier, be still is a command from God to the enemy. But that phrase, be still, those two words should remind us of another passage in scripture of Christ himself. In Mark chapter four, 
A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Very possible, the very same thing that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were crying out to God. God, do you not care that the enemy is outside? We've run out of food. We've run out of water. We've run out of hope. There is nothing left for us. Don't you care? Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind and waves ceased. There was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this? That even the wind and the waves and the sea obey him. Again, creation language is as if this moment here is telling the reader, don't miss it. Christ, in whom through all creation is, is held together. Christ was present in Genesis 1. Christ was present in, in Psalm 46. And Christ is present here on the boat saying, peace, be still, be quiet. I'm in charge. I am the champion. I am the protector. I am the comforter. But not just for those in the boat, but for anyone else that might come. And I will make a way. You see, this picture of champion, the one that we often think of, of a victor, is one with laurels on their head, a medal around their neck, holding up a trophy. Glad exaltation. Fans cheering in the streets, right? Jubilant song, celebration. That time will come, and we see it in Revelation. The earth and the heavens will rejoice. But that time will come. It has come, yes, but it also will come into New Jerusalem. But again, when we talk about Jesus Christ as champion, how is Christ portrayed? Is it as one who comes in riding on a stallion with a sword drawn? Again, not until Revelation. Instead, we see this in Isaiah 53. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. We, yet we esteemed him smit, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. Again, this is not what you would think of of your champion. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On Christ was the punishment due us given. And what do we want to do? Christ, take, take all this so that I'm not smitten, but give me your glory. Is often what I know I'm saying. Give me the good. None of the bad. Christ was despised and rejected. This makes no sense. Even Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 1. 
The cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. Jews seek a demand sign. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, who was a stumbling block. It makes no sense from a worldly point of view. How can you rejoice when the enemy is knocking on the door and is threatening your entire existence? Because God is in the midst of us. That's how we can rejoice. I am demanded of that. I am commanded to do that because of who Christ is and what he has done. He might be a stumbling block to you, but he is a source of life, a source of life to those who believe on him. Christ himself, God himself is our hope. He is our treasure. He is our peace. We may never experience that here on this earth. Many of us in this room, many of us watching from home have known only suffering or feel like all we know is suffering and pain and loss. And to do, Christ says, come. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me and find rest. I am your refuge. I am your savior. I am your comforter. I am your protector. I will champion you. Be still and know that I am God is not just a command for us to say whenever we feel scared. It is a command from God to our enemies. But in that, he also says, come, all of you, to me, because in me, you will find life. What is it that we ought to rejoice in? Luke 9 says this very clearly. Jesus himself says this. When the 72 return, saying, Lord, the demons even listen to us and are subject to us. Jesus says, he did such a great job. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you because I'm your champion. I'm your protector. I'm your comforter. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but instead what? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is the treasure. That is the prize. He himself, Christ himself, is everything. So when Christ says, be still, Yes, he is talking to the enemy, but he's also talking to us as we go looking for other things to satisfy our hearts. He says, be still. I am God and I will be exalted. May that alone be enough. May Christ alone be enough. And may we never try to add to him or to it, to the gospel. May Christ and these words of the gospel give us strength when we encounter suffering. And if you haven't yet, you will. That's not me foretelling the future. That is just a human broken experience of this life. And then may the gospel be what prompts us to say, God, I don't understand. But all I do know is that you have promised that you are within us. You are present. You will not forsake me. You will never leave me. And that is what makes us to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as the things of this world draw our attention, the approval of man, the power that we so often want to exert over others, the control that we want to have over our own lives, the comfort that we seek that makes us look to ourselves and not to you. God, we pray that you would capture our hearts and that we would run to you 
day in and day out would we remind ourselves of that truth, that Christ, you are our comforter, you are our protector, and you are our champion. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.